Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Or if you want to come into the church, that sort of thing, you need help, we're here. I'm still working here. I was here yesterday. Uh, many others were as well. We're, we're going to still be working throughout the week. Uh, there has been no mandated shutdowns, uh, so the church will still continue to go. As well, um, we're going to meet with cells as well. I mean, we're going to see how that's going to look. We did cancel. I know for the first week, we did postpone and cancel all the meetings that we were doing at the church, uh, as well as we recommended that you just put a pause on everything that we were asking you to do. But going forward, we're going to look for creative ways to use online technology, uh, devotionals, resources, home sales, all that kind of stuff. And, and God is going to provide a way. Lastly, I just want to say, um, as difficult as this is, and it is difficult, uh, w- there's going to be people responding on both sides of the pendulum. And some are, you know, responding with a lot of fear. Uh, others, even Christians, are responding uh, by dismissing by dismissing the problem and saying it's not a big deal. And I want to encourage us as the church, Southland, but as the church, more than just being Southland, uh, that we be sensitive in, in times like this. Because there are people, you know, when we're being dismissive of the problem, whether it be as big as the media says it is or not, it actually doesn't matter. There are many people globally, we know of many of them, uh, even Joshua and Phoebe in the Philippines uh, who are under quarantine and who are being affected. There's also been many deaths. So we don't want to make light of tragedy like that. So even if we don't think it's a big deal, I would encourage you not to minimize it to others, but to love others, to respond in faith, be an encouraging voice, be someone who prays quickly, who loves quickly, who encourages. And if you're, if you're full of fear, I totally get that as well. I want you to remember that God is sovereign. He wasn't surprised by, by, by uh, COVID-19. He was not surprised by it one bit. He knew it was coming, and he also knows when it's going to be gone. He is sovereign and in control. And this is a time that we can seek the Lord and find our true rest and peace in him. So lastly, I want to read you a passage, and then I'm going to let the worship team start and Pastor Lauren and uh, they'll take it from here. Isaiah 55, 6-7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, or neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And I want to encourage you to use this time to seek the Lord. Use this time to seek the Lord. Use this time to ask the questions that we don't often have margin in our lives to do. Lord, what are my priorities like in my life right now? What am I living for? Use this time to pray. Use this time to love others. Use this time to be the church. I want to pray for you, and then the worship team will begin. Lord Jesus, we want to recognize that you are in control. And as scary as times can be like this, um, Lord, we want to draw near to you because we recognize something like COVID-19 just reminds us of something that has always been true. And the truth is, we've never been in control. You are the only one who has been in control. And so, Lord, this is reminding us of the fragility of our human nature. And so, Lord, as we are reminded how fragile we are, as we are reminded how fragile the world can be in the systems of the world, we ask that you would help us put our full focus and attention onto you. I ask for a peace that passes understanding to guard our hearts. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would fill each one of us, your church, with your Holy Spirit, that we would be a good testimony of who you are. Lord, that people would see us not responding in fear, but responding in faith and love and humility. Lastly, Lord, we thank you for how you are going to continue moving in our church. We thank you for how you're going to continue allowing us to be the church and giving us creative ideas to move forward. And then we also ask you to give great wisdom to our government as they are making decisions that are impossible. These are impossibly difficult decisions uh, that are affecting millions of people to shut down schools or close gatherings or sporting events or whatever it might be. They're impossible decisions. Lord, give us hearts of compassion for them and give our leaders wisdom. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, church. I've uh, got to take a deep breath here because uh, one of my, uh, my long-standing dreams was to be 
in a church with two other generations of my family. I never thought I'd be on the same stage with them, but uh, uh, that's my joy already this morning. A warm welcome, as you've already heard, to every single one of you watching at home uh, online this morning. I'm not sure when the last time was that we only had one service here at Southland, but I'm guessing it was a long time ago. So there's just a few of us here manning the ship right now, but can I encourage you to participate as you would if you were physically here with us this morning? If you are a note taker, I would encourage you to take notes. I know it's hard for some, but if this format should continue for a few weeks, stand when we ask you to stand. Join in with full voice with the worship team as they lead us like you would in the shower, and I guess you could do it in the shower now. I've had some experience with simulcasts, and I can tell you without exception that the more you actively participate, rather than become a spectator in this, the more you will receive from it all. As I was thinking about how this would feel today, the first thought I had was that this will give us a whole new appreciation of the community we enjoy here in church. Like most things, we begin to take for granted that which always seems to be there. But today I think we will miss being together, and that's good, because we will look forward to being together again all the more, because this too will pass. And of course, to emphasize what Pastor Stefan said earlier, the church is not this building, as wonderful as a serving place as it is. The building, of course, cannot put on the father-son ball that happened here this last week with all the volunteers and all the fathers and daughters here. It was a marvelous event. The building does not encourage others, think of others, love others. The building did not raise more than $14,000 for the set-free retreat in Uganda this past week. The building does not hold a food and clothing drive that blesses so many in both giving and in the receiving. But with God, we do it. Today we can't see each other, but we can know that God sees us all, and we are united in what God has called us to as a body of believers. We are the church and Jesus has told us that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I'd like to start with a prayer, because while the turn of events lately might be a surprise to us, as Stefan mentioned, it's no surprise to God. I know that for a fact, because a week ago, God turned me away from what I was intending to speak and took me to the topic that we'll look at today, and I think you'll see how really good God is and how much he loves his church. I also want to pray for our lead pastor and his wife, Pastor Chris, who has been away on a study break for the last week and is flying back to Winnipeg later this afternoon. We're grateful that they've been safe and well. He has been able to be a part, as Stefan mentioned, of all the discussions and decisions leading up to where we find ourselves today. But obviously, he's looking forward to getting back here and shepherding us in person. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that in a world that is changing around us moment by moment, you haven't changed one bit. You are still Almighty God. You are still the same. You are still in control, and you, st you are still with us every moment and through everything that we face. That gives us such peace and assurance in these times of uncertainty. I ask, Lord, that you would lead us as our great shepherd through the rest of this service, this day, and the days ahead, that you would grant the wisdom of the ages to our leaders here in church and those in our community, country, and around the world. Speaking of those around us, Father, we pray for all of our fellow brothers and sisters in the faith who are faced with similar circumstances like us this morning in how they're connecting. Excuse me. <coughs> And we lift up our world to you, Lord. We pray for your healing hand to be upon this, those afflicted with, with illness, for strength and protection for all the caregivers who give of themselves to help others. And we ask, Father, that as the ways of this world only reveal our frailties and our inadequacies, that all would turn to you in this 
and take your hand of comfort and power, and that you would still the storm as only you can. We lift up Pastor Chris and LaDon, who are perhaps even right now packing in preparation for their return back here. Keep them safe and healthy. Lord, we pray, protect them as they travel. Expedite their passage through customs. And for all those returning to our country, we pray, Father, that they would also be safe and well. Thank you for their leadership and the leadership of our team of a leadership team and our elders. Keep them, Holy Spirit, within your will and guidance. As always, this morning, we give ourselves to you. Speak to your people once more, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to start off this morning with a question, which I know is a little odd when you aren't here to answer it, but on the other hand, you can shout out your answer now and not have any fear that someone down the row from you is going to lean over and look to see who said that. The question is this. If you had to guess, what do you think is the most common command in Scripture? Of all the things that God could have chosen, what is the most frequent instruction that God gives us in his word? It's not be more loving, although, of course, that's right at the very core of God's will for human beings. We struggle with pride. That's at the heart of human fallenness. But the most common command doesn't have to do with fighting pride or even cultivating humility. It's not about sexual integrity or walking in truth, although those are real important things also. The most common command given to all in Scripture is two words. They are the first two words that God spoke to the world through his angels when he sent his son Jesus to the world. Fear not. Fear not. Release your anxiety. Let go of your fear. There are 365 fear nots in the Bible. I'm thinking that's not a coincidence, that there's one for every day of the year. God is saying, get the message here, folks. Don't let fear rule your life. Because fear is a universal deal. Every one of us, let's face it, wrestles with it. Author Dave Barry put it like this. All of us are born with a set of instinctive fears. The fear of falling, the fear of the dark, the fear of lobsters, the fear of falling on lobsters in the dark, the fear of public speaking, and the fear of words, some assembly required. We all wrestle with fear. What are you fearful about? The economy, your bills, your kids, your health, the COVID virus? What are you fearful about? Let me digress for just a moment here. Not all fear is bad. We're told to fear the Lord. That's a very good fear. It's not our topic for today, but that's a very good fear. There's a good kind of fear that also helps us to survive. Good fear teaches us to respect appropriate boundaries. Good fear alerts us to real dangers. It keeps kids from touching hot stoves. But then there are bad destructive fears. Bad fears paralyze us from doing what we ought to do. Bad fear can have disastrous results. Bad fear distorts things. It exaggerates. It puts things out of touch with reality. It gives us a chronic sense of worry and anxiety. There's good fear and there's bad fear. Just to make sure that distinction is real clear, I want to give you a little quiz here. Again, try to interact with me at home. I'll run through a couple of scenarios. You tell me where you're sitting. You tell me if the type of fear I describe is a good fear or is it a bad fear, okay? First of all, the fear that keeps children from playing in the middle of Main Street. Good fear, bad fear. Well, that's a good fear, obviously. The fear that keeps you from interviewing for your all-time dream job. Good fear, bad fear. Well, that's a bad fear. The, the fear that keeps you from expressing your deepest, truest feelings to the law enforcement officer who stopped you for speeding, even though there are people going much faster than you on the road who he didn't stop. Good fear, bad fear. That's a good fear. I don't think it'd be wise to say that. The fear that keeps a man from dressing the way he really wants to so he can be comfortable when doing a live stream for the first time. Good fear or bad fear? That's probably a good fear. There is good fear, but for the most part, 
I believe the number of commands in Scripture suggests to us that fear, as it's most commonly experienced by human beings, is not a good thing. God says it so often because I believe that fear is the number one factor that keeps people from living a risky, obedient life with God. So today I want to make the best case I can for why it is worth intense effort on your part to live beyond fear. First, I want you to have absolute clarity on the high cost, the staggeringly high cost of living in fear. Five things that fear does to us if we don't heed God's warning to fear not. Number one, it makes us skeptical. Simply put, when we're afraid, we begin to doubt. We doubt ourselves, we doubt God, we doubt other people, we become skeptical. Living in fear will eat away at your self-worth. It will erode your ability to believe in your own value as someone made in the image of God. If you live in fear and avoidance, then friends, I want to tell you, even if you're real gifted, and even if things externally turn out real well for you, inside of you, will, you will be incurring an internal debt that you'll pay off for the rest of your life, and it is so not worth it. The cost is too high. Number two, fear makes us stubborn and stagnant. Let's not rock the boat, we say. Things aren't so bad for us right now. Let's leave well enough alone. Living with this mindset of fear, you will experience stagnation and a growing stubbornness in your life instead of growth. Somebody has said, the hardest thing to open is a closed mind. If you fear the unknown, you will never experience or realize the potential God has placed in you since growth always, always involves risk. Let me ask you, in these times, are you turning towards God, seeking him out, reading his word? Are you growing or are you sliding in the other direction? Fear makes us afraid of failure. What if we try to do something and it doesn't go well? What if we can't make enough money? What if people see, see, uh, see us you know, make different choices in our lives and they think we're foolish? So until we get some ironclad guarantee that everything's going to work out just the way we want it to, we're just going to sit in the waiting room of life and stagnate waiting our whole life long. And we will never have done then what God created us to do. That's too high a price to pay. A shrunken heart, unrealized potential, it's too high a price to pay. Number three, fear makes us selfish. When we're afraid, the only thing we t tend to think about is ourselves. I don't think about you. I don't think about anybody else. I'm just focusing in on me. When you're afraid, we accuse others, we excuse ourselves, we pass the buck, we push people away, and run from responsibility and commitment. It's exactly the opposite of God's desire for us, that we think of others more than we think of ourselves, and it's just too high a price to pay. Number four, fear makes us sorrowful. Living in fear will cost you your joy. That's a staggering cost. You will know the pain of constant, chronic, low-grade anxiety and sorrow. One of the things that researchers have found is that most fearful people tend to have a high-capacity imagination. They are often people with a lot of creative potential and generally quite intelligent, but their imagination runs towards the negative. The little phrase that runs through their mind quite often, frequently, is this, what if? What if I get in an accident and wreck the car? What if I do the wrong thing at work and lose my job? What if I give a bad message? These are all things that are contingent. They're all set in the future and may never happen at all. But when I have a fear-filled mind, I give them the power to rob me of life now. What if you wreck your car? Get rid of it. Get a new one. What if you lose your job? Get rid of it. Get a new one. What if the pastor gives a bad message? Get him out fishing. When you live in fear, you lose perspective and the power of the what-if. And the what-if becomes paralyzing. You go through life without joy because joy and fear are fundamentally incompatible. Do you know, for instance, a fearful, joyful person? No, you don't. They don't exist. 
Living with a mindset of fear will lead to a mountain of sorrow at the end of your life. It's way too high a price to pay. One last cost, number five. Fear makes you short-sighted. It's costly because it can unwittingly get passed on from one generation to the next. For parents, I think maybe this is the highest cost of all. Because if you allow yourself to go through your life with your hopes, your dreams, your callings, being impaired, distorted by fear and worry, there's a good chance that you will pass those same fears on. As parents, you are teaching your children 24-7. 24-7, all day, all, all the days you are teaching your children something. So the question is, what are you teaching them? What are you teaching them even right now? Fearless faith or faithless fear? So how do we go about getting on the right side of all this? It was a great slogan for a credit card company a while back, don't leave home without it. Which, of course, isn't sometimes really the best advice at all for credit cards. There have been many times I actually wished that I had left mine at home. We have our checklists before we leave, though. We got our wallet, our keys, our glasses, our kids. And today, I'd like to add one more thing to your daily checklist. Something that we should never leave home without. Something that the Bible says is so vitally important that it will outlast whatever else is on your list save maybe the kids. Yet I'm willing to guess that it doesn't appear on any of our lists as we head out the door to begin another day. The Apostle Paul says, one glorious day when he and you and I get to see Jesus face to face, suddenly everything is going to come into focus for us and we will see that after all is said and done, there will be three things, three things that remain, faith, hope, and love. You see, the life of following after Christ is really pretty simple. Sum it up in three words. Faith, hope, and love. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Be joyful in hope and have faith. That's it. Some people think that the way you please God is that you chant certain prayers. Do certain rituals over and over to please God. But that, that's not what the Bible says. Some people think that the way you please God is to make a list of all the things you're supposed to do and all the things you're not supposed to do. If you do more of the things on the do list and less of the things on the don't do list, then God is going to say you're okay. But that's not what the Bible says at all. Some people think that the way you please God is that you observe certain holy days or go to a bunch of religious experiences, and then God says, well, you're in. But that's not what the Bible says either. The Bible says God isn't interested in ritual or rules or regulations or even religion. He's interested in a relationship with you. He wants you to learn to trust him. The Bible says that it's impossible. He doesn't use that word lightly. The Bible says that it's impossible to please God unless you have one thing. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. God tells us that it's impossible to please him unless we have this one thing, faith. So don't leave home without it. He says to Abraham, leave your home, go with your wife Sarah. As old people, you're going to give birth to a son and become the father of a nation. But you'll have to leave everything familiar and comfortable behind. You're going to have to trust me. God says to Moses, go confront the most powerful man in the world. Tell him, let my people go. I'm going to start a new community that's going to give hope to the world. And you'll be the beginning of it on the ground floor. But you've got to trust me. Jesus said one day to a well-off young guy, I want you to go and sell everything you've got, empty your whole portfolio, portfolio, empty your bank accounts, and give it all to the poor and bless their lives. Then come and follow me, and we'll do life together. But you've got to trust me. And some people did. When people trust God, you know, they never, ever regret it. But sometimes people said no. This young man, this rich young man, said no to Jesus. I wonder about him sometimes. I wonder if one day he looked back and wondered, how would my life have turned out differently 
if I'd said yes. Maybe a heart that grew old and hard and cold would have caught on fire instead. Maybe a spirit that became self-absorbed would have become generous. Maybe a life that got lonely would have been filled instead with love. See, here's the kicker. When you come to the end of your life, all those what-ifs, the fears that paralyzed you for so long, they become what might have been. What might have been if I trusted God? What might I have done? What might I have become? Over and over in the Bible, it is fear that threatens to keep people from trusting and obeying God. Over and over in Scripture, there are two kinds of mindsets laid out as possibilities for the human race. One is based on faith. You can trust God. You can trust God's goodness and his power are sufficient for your life and live with a sense of relaxed confidence and assurance in him. That's the mindset of faith. Or you can live in the mindset of fear. I'm on my own. It's up to me. Unless I'm real careful and cautious, something real bad will happen to me, and I might not be able to handle it. See, the illusion that the human beings generally have is that it's the circumstances that I face, the difficult situation that I'm in, that produces the fear in me. But that's not what the Bible teaches. I believe Scripture teaches this is not the case. Because over and over again in the Bible, two different sets of people will face exactly the same situation and come up with very different perspectives, very different responses. Moses sent 12 scouts to explore the promised land. Ten came back and said, yeah, the land is great, but the enemies, <laughs> well, those who defy God are so powerful, so huge, we felt like grasshoppers next to them. We can never overcome them, so we're doomed. The two other scouts, Joshua and Caleb, looked at the same land, went to the same places, saw the same enemies, and they say, we should go to the land God promised us, for certainly we can do it. A young shepherd boy named David brought supplies to his brothers who were serving in the army. There he sees what they all see, the great champion of the enemies of the people of God named Goliath, and he's huge. He's going out every day and mocking God. All the soldiers see him, all the soldiers see him, and they're too terrified to challenge him. He's so big, he'd squash us like a bug. David sees him and goes after him with a slingshot and says, He's so big, I can't miss. The same enemy. What's the difference? It's not the situation. It's not the circumstances. It's the mindset. In other words, it's a choice. The single most common command in all of the Bible is the command to choose to live in the mindset of faith, not the mindset of fear. There's another interesting aspect to this when you start to look at Scripture, because when God says, do not fear to somebody in the Bible, very rarely is he doing it just to soothe their anxiety. Usually it comes as God is asking of them, asking people to take some adventuresome step of trust in him that they don't want to take. He calls people to acts of extraordinary obedience, to risky faith, and it all comes down to this. Will they leave home with their fear, or will they leave home with their faith? God would say to us this morning, choose faith, choose faith. So in the time we have left, we're going to take a look at a few of the basics of faith, because all that God wants to do in your life, he does on the basis of faith. It's indispensable. How many of you this morning would say, I'd like to have more faith in my life, but I don't know how that happens? Well, God is here for you today. He doesn't want you to have confusion about this. He tells us how. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. God's Word illustrates and explains to us how faith can make a difference in our lives. So that's where we should look, and that's where we're going to look. Today I want to focus in on my favorite faith story in the Bible. It's the account of Jesus and the centurion. Jesus has come down from the hill where he has just given the sermon to end all sermons. We call it the Sermon on the Mount, where he taught the Beatitudes and many, many more wonderful truths. I'm sure it was pretty tiring. 
In his approach then afterwards to his hometown of Capernaum, we're going to show you a few slides of that map and a few recent pictures of the place just so you get a feel for it. He has already encountered and healed a leper on the way back to hometown. Capernaum, located on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee, was the largest of many towns surrounding the lake. It was thriving with great wealth as well as great crime and decadence. Near a major trade route, it housed a contingent of Roman soldiers under the command of a centurion. Centurions got their name from the fact that they had control of a hundred men. It was a prestigious position in the army to be a centurion, and many sons of powerful Romans began their public career at this level to kind of show their mettle and to work their way up to political stardom. Needless to say, as occupying forces, the soldiers were hated by the Jews for their oppression, for the taxes they levied, and for the ridicule they gave. But interestingly enough, of the three or four centurions mentioned specifically in Scripture, all, all of them are cast in a very positive light. I'll read this portion to you now. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to this servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, which was his way of emphasizing something. I tell you the truth. I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. The centurion. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. The greatest factor that influences your, your life is the way that you see things, the way you see yourself, the way that you see your husband, your wife, your job, your problems, your past, your future, other people, the way you see everything in life. Your perspective makes all the difference. Chuck Swindle tells the story of a couple of nuns who worked as nurses in a hospital. They ran out of gas while driving to work one morning. A service station was nearby, but they had no container in which to put the gas. One of the women remembered that she had a bedpan in the trunk, and so the gas was put into the pan, and the two nuns carried it very carefully back to the car. As the nuns are pouring the gasoline from the bedpan into the car, two men were driving by. They stare in disbelief. Finally, one said to the other, Now, Fred, that's what I call faith. It appeared to be utter foolishness. The trouble was, those doubters just didn't have the facts. They really didn't see. And were they ever surprised when those two nuns went ripping by them on the freeway? As human beings, we often say things like, I'll believe it when I see it. And God says, no, you've, you've got that all backwards. Some things you have to believe it in order to see it. Whether you're an architect planning a building or whether you're an artist creating a sculpture, or whether you're an Olympic athlete trying to break a world's record, or whether you're an engineer slash scientist trying to send a man to Mars, you have to believe it before you can see it. All of those things require faith. You have to believe it's possible in advance, long before it will ever happen and come to be. That's what the Bible says faith is, believing when you don't see it. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we don't see. So faith certainly is believing when I don't see it. Right now, I'm working on that. I have to believe you're all out there watching and I'm not just talking to a camera for the fun of it. We are given a clue as to where the centurion stands on this whole belief question by the way that he simply approaches Jesus. Notice that he doesn't demand his presence, nor does he demand a healing. He simply invites Jesus' attention to his problem. He trusts, his trusted servant is sick, paralyzed, and near death. Just as sort of a side note rabbit trail here for a second, I wonder how respectful we are sometimes when we pray. Do we demand things of Jesus or simply invite him into our problem? Another clue about the centurion comes as he addresses Jesus as Lord. Not an easy word for a proud Roman centurion to use at all. 
From this we know that he had heard of Jesus before and had great respect and, yes, faith in him already, as was his very act, obviously, in coming to Jesus in the first place. Faith is believing when you can't see. You know, the African impala can jump 10 feet high, which just like twice my height, roughly, can jump that high and can do a distance of over 30 feet. So think, you know, 10 yards or more on a football field. Yet you know how they keep it in a zoo? They keep it in the zoo behind a solid three-foot wall. Because impalas only stand three feet high, and they won't jump if they can't see where their feet are going to land. Is that you? See, faith is somebody who goes after Moby Dick in a rowboat and takes along some tartar sauce. I saw a cartoon once that showed two Inuit fishing, two Inuit fishing, Inuit men fishing through holes in the ice. One of them had cut a hole, just to picture this if you will, one of them had cut a hole like you might expect to see, a round one about the size of a manhole cover. The other one sitting next to him had cut out for himself an immense hole that seemed to reach towards the horizon in the shape of a whale. It was clear that he was expecting to see great things at the end of his line. I remember hearing the story of a black church congregation in the Deep South that had met to pray for rain as they'd had drought for, for months and they needed to save their crops. They called a meeting for that purpose. The preacher looked severely at his flock when they came and said, Brothers and sisters, you all know why he's here. Now what I wants to know is, where's all your umbrellas? See, faith is acting and obeying when you don't know the outcome. Our centurion simply did not sit back and say, you know, I'll bet that fellow Jesus could heal this servant, but <laughs> like that's ever going to happen. No, he seized the initiative, inspired by his faith, that Jesus could and would respond to his need. Do you know that Jesus will respond to your need? James tells us that faith is always accompanied by action, or it isn't really faith at all. But lest we dismiss our faith as insignificant, Jesus said, it doesn't take a whole lot of faith, really. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, nothing will be impossible for you. Now, we sometimes hear that phrase, and we focus on the size of our faith, but that's not the point of that verse at all. The point is, you put a little bitty faith in a big, big God, and you get big results. Some of you are facing some impossible situations right now. You need that verse. Faith is deciding to begin. It's committing yourself to action. Faith is being obedient even when you don't know the outcome or it doesn't make sense. If anybody understood obedience and following instruction, it was the centurion. And this is where his faith shines. Because of his position, the centurion could delegate responsibility with a word and know that that job would be done. No questions asked. When he gave orders to his soldiers, he spoke with the authority of the emperor himself. He saw that Jesus' authority was greater than his own and that he spoke for God, that, that in addressing him as Lord, he was speaking directly to him in the position that he held and to God himself. He also understood that Jesus not only speak the word to heal his servant. Just, sorry, Jesus need only speak the word to his servant. He understood the power of Jesus' words and that his power and authority came from God. When Jesus spoke, God spoke. Think about the power of words for a moment. Because we live in a world of words. In my limited sphere, my, my word has a certain power. If I come to church to do a funeral or a wedding and everything is planned and ready to go, why does it happen? It's because I gave the word. We used to have a dog. If she sat, which she did sometimes, why did that happen? It's because I gave the word. Back in the day, I'd arrive home and my two sons had, had put out the garbage or mowed the lawn. Why had that happened? It's because I gave the word. If I come home and there are slippers laid out by my favorite chair with a TV remote and a glass of iced tea waiting, why does that happen? It's because I went into the wrong house. That's why. <laughs> my word has power, but it's very limited. The centurion had absolutely no doubt that Jesus need merely speak the word to have it done. 
How about you? Do you believe in the power of his words? The story of Gideon in the Old Testament is another example. Won't spend much time there, but God had reduced the size of Gideon's army from 32,000 down to just 300 soldiers, and they were going out to battle against some 10,000 soldiers or more. You see, part of the point is they had a three-to-one advantage as they were about to begin this battle. But God takes them down from that three-to-one advantage to completely being on the other side and having a 30-to-one disadvantage. God says, guess what he says to Gideon? Fear not. Fear not. Here's what you're going to take to battle. I want everybody to take a torch and everybody to take a clay pot and everybody to take a trumpet. Okay, imagine you're one of the 300. You've seen all the rest of your thousands of compatriots leave and you're about to go out and face 10,000 and instead of a weapon, you're given a trumpet, a clay pot, and a torch. You go out there God says, circle around camp at midnight, and when I tell you what to do, do it. Gideon had faith and followed the instructions. God said, put the pot over the torch so that the light doesn't shine out until I say. When I say go, you're going to break the pots, blow the trumpets. 300 men will look like thousands. They'll jump up in confusion. They'll start slashing each other, and you won't even have to fight. They'll kill each other off, and that's exactly what happened. Has God ever asked you to do something that didn't make any sense? See, faith is obeying and trusting when you don't understand it. Of course, Proverbs 3, 5, we know. Trust in the Lord and don't lean on your own understanding. Thirdly, faith is expecting God to work in your life when you let go of control. See, faith is risky. It's part of the reason it's a struggle for us. Faith means stepping out into the unknown. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians, we walk by faith, not by sight. That means we walk seeing with spiritual eyes, not with physical eyes. We're to look at things from God's point of view rather than ours. And that just simply gets scary. Faith is letting go of your, your security, the security that you've kind of manufactured. Faith is saying, I'm going to face my fears. I'm going to risk failure. I'm going to take the step of faith. A young boy is trapped in the window of a three-story house in a raging fire. His father calls out to him from the ground below to jump, and he will catch him. But the boy refuses, and the fire gets worse. And he cries out, but I can't see you, Dad. To which the father replies, that's okay. You don't need to see me. I can see you. Jump. Certainly our centurion was taking a big risk. This would not be smiled upon in Rome by any stretch. He was crossing racial, social, political boundaries to present his servant's plight. Faith is risky. It's making the investment of time, of money, of energy, of reputation, whatever it is, and letting God determine the outcome. Faith expects that things will happen. Now here's the question of the hour. What in the world are you expecting God to do in your life? As a church, what are we respectfully having faith that God will do in our midst? The Bible says, in, says God is able to do more than you can think or imagine. What a great verse that is in Ephesians. The centurion had complete faith, faith that Jesus could heal his servant, and he did. And Jesus almost always did more than what was expected. A guy came to him to be healed. He not only healed him, he forgave his sins. They expected him to send the crowd away. Instead, he did a miracle and fed the 5,000. They expected him to put up a fight and resist going to the cross. Instead, he went to the cross willingly and died and rose again. More than expected. Because he's an then-some kind of God. God wants to do that in your life. But maybe the ultimate faith statement along these lines is what Jesus says. He says, with God, all things are possible. And then it comes to us. We have to decide. Was Jesus in deep denial, or is that really true? You'll have to remember those two phrases go together. Jesus doesn't simply say, all things are possible. Jesus says, with God, all things are possible. When you're with God, all things are possible. With a life that is submitted to God, with a heart that is tender and yielded before God, with a prayer-filled life with God, all things are possible. 
In Hebrews 11, there's a list of people who have suffered for their faith. Some of them get their heads cut off. Some of them were burned at the stake. Some of them got their eyes poked out. Some of them were drowned. And all kinds of gruesome stuff happened to those people. And yet, it says they were heroes of the faith. Maybe don't read that right before lunch. But read it nonetheless. The point is that living by faith does not exempt you from problems. Maybe if you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this. Living by faith does not exempt you from problems, health or otherwise. Some of you know from experience that as a follower of Christ, you still have problems now, now that you're a believer. It's just that now you have a new power to help you overcome or walk through them. I've said many times, the world is before us. The choice is really, do you want to try and walk it alone on your own strength and power? Or do you actually want to walk it holding on to the hand of the one who knows the future, the one who knows all, the one who created all, and the one who has the strength and power to deliver you in the end? What's your choice? God doesn't say you won't have any problems. Faith doesn't exempt you from problems. Just ask the believers in North Korea or China or India and Pakistan or Saudi Arabia about the persecution that they're enduring for their faith. See, only in North America do we have this thing that says, if I become a follower of Christ, God wants me to be prosperous, maybe even a millionaire, and always to be healthy with no problems. That's just simply not true, folks. You know it's not true. And God never made that promise. And sometimes we pray for relief, and relief doesn't come. In fact, sometimes we pray for God to remove a difficulty or a problem, and instead of taking it away, he gives us the strength to go through it. Why? Because God is more, way more interested in your character than he is in your comfort. God didn't say, I've come that you might have easy living. See, God wants to build your character. He wants to make you a person of integrity and stability and values and somebody who has a sturdy essence about your life, a solidness that you become more and more like his son Christ every day. The only way you get character is by going through tough times. Find out that you can trust him when the going gets tough, that God is faithful to his promises. Sometimes you don't know God is all you need until he's all you've got. See, faith is not just intellectual assent. The Bible says the devil believes in God. Demons tremble, but you're not going to find them in heaven. Why? Because it's much, much more than intellectual assent. Faith is a lifestyle that believes when I don't see it, obeys when I don't understand it, expects God to work in my life when I yield, gives when I don't have it, persists when I don't feel like it, thanks God before I even receive it, and trusts God if I don't get what I wanted. That's what it means to live by faith each day. Now let me ask the worship team to come back up and join me on stage. And just as we close this morning, I want to hear you, I want you to hear this. Whatever you do, whatever you do, don't try facing a full-time problem on part-time faith. Did you hear? Don't try facing a full-time problem on part-time faith. It just won't work. You need a full-time, head-on, full-blown faith to handle the problems you're going to have in life. The starting point is always to establish a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I can't think of a better time than now for you to do that. If you've never said yes to Jesus, then just say, even in these moments, Jesus Christ, I want to step over the line today. I want to put my faith in you. It hasn't been working so well for me to be doing it on my own. I don't see you, but I choose today to believe in you, to have faith in you. Forgive my sins. Cause me to grow in you from this point over. I just give myself to you. I'd encourage you to pray that kind of a prayer in these moments today. Because you can live a life with fearless faith rather than faithless fear. More often than God commands anything else, God commands, fear not. Then something else you need to understand about that statement is that God almost always gives a reason why you don't have to fear. Listen to these verses. God says, fear not, 
Why? For I am with you. The Lord is my strength and my salvation. Of whom shall I be afraid? Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not be terrified or give way to panic. For the Lord, your God, is the one who goes with you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. For God is with you. Perhaps more than ever, we must have faith and not leave home without it. You know what I've discovered? I found that if we could understand everything about God and understand why he does things the way he does when it doesn't make sense to us, if he were small enough for us to understand, he wouldn't be big enough for our problems. And today I'm so glad that he is bigger than anything we will ever face and that he is with us. The very things that I wanted most desperately to be removed or avoided in my life so I'd be comfortable were the very things that shaped me to be who he wanted me to be. And he wants to do that in your life too. Fear not, he says, for I am with you. Let's pray. Lord, I'm sure that the days ahead will be ones of testing, but I pray that through it all we would hear your words each day. Fear not. Fear not. Help us to keep the faith. Help us to be bringers of care to those who are sick and afraid. Help us to be your hands and feet and givers of living water to those around us who perhaps will be faced with an uncertainty they've never known in their lives before. Find us turning to you, searching your word, trusting you, treasuring the community you've given us, thinking of things that are pure and right and true and trustworthy and honorable. Grant to us the peace that is not broken by the present circumstances and heal our land as only you can. We pray and all God's people agreed in Jesus' name and said, Amen. I want to close with the reading of a scripture here, just a short little passage from Psalm, Psalm 121. I believe it's appropriate for the times we face. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over you and your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and your going, both now and and forevermore. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you in these days. May the Lord show you his favor and give you his peace. Amen. Thanks for your attention this morning. God bless you.